Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, welcome back to the uh, podcast. How was your long weekend? It was great, Nate. Had a great time with the family. Um, you know, kind of sending summer off uh, into the into the ether, though, felt like a sort of turn the page and getting ready for fall. How about you? Yeah, it was nice. You know, a little uh, college football, which interestingly, so I'm based in Kansas City. They just legalized sports betting uh, on the Kansas side. So that was fun. I got my uh, teeth kicked in on my bets, but had a lot of fun putting a few very small wagers down. It reminded me why I don't trade individual stocks. Uh, but uh, no, made it out to the uh, lake for an afternoon, smoked some ribs, had a, had a very nice weekend. Well, that's awesome. Well, Nate, before we dive into it, what as, as we, as we kind of turn the page and move into the fall season, what was the highlight of your summer? And, and I can share one with, uh, with you as well. Uh, you know, that's a good... This, this was an odd summer for me, to be honest, Tom, because... Usually my wife and I are pretty good at uh, finding at least a week to take the kids somewhere and unwind a little bit, ha- have a little family time. But unfortunately, with both of our work schedules and the kids' summer camps and all their activities, we just didn't make it happen. We had way too much going on, which, you know, I'm getting my violin out here, right? Certainly a first world problem, but I am feeling it a little bit. We just did not get that downtime this summer. So honestly, it was pretty boring overall really just worked a lot now i'm hoping we can get something on the calendar here over the next three to four months but uh, i i don't know that i have a highlight which is kind of uh, kind of sad what, what about on your side yeah no nate i hear you it's funny it used to be things would slow down in the summer on on all different fronts but uh we experienced the same thing just so many different things going on but we we were actually fortunate to, enough to get over to, to to europe we went to greece for a week with the family and it was just an amazing experience. We had some some Greek hosts who uh, I'd say the highlight within that broader highlight was uh, they'd, they'd set up these dinners and the culinary experience, not only the food, but but the ambiance and just the way in which they were thoughtful about where we'd go. It, it was just uh, it was incredible. So we were really lucky to, to get that this summer. And it felt great to to travel again. Uh, you know, we we dodged any of the real, you know, travel headaches that I know a lot of other folks experienced, but uh, overall, it was just, it was, it was just really memorable, once in a lifetime kind of thing. So, wow, sounds amazing. Did you have a favorite city that you visited? You know what? We spent most of the time on the island of Rhodes. Uh, that's where our, our friends and hosts were were at, and so we were in a, a small town in Rhodes called Falaraki for most of the time. Short uh, stop over in Athens on the way back, but you know, both were incredible, uh, you know, different in their own right. But, uh, you know, it wasn't a whole whole bunch of travel within Greece. It, w- it was more so get over there and, and experience that specific part of, of Greek, uh, you know, the, the Greek landscape and culture. How nice. You may not know this. I actually lived over in Europe for about seven years. And uh, my wife has never been over there. She went to Spain, but has never kind of gone through you know, Germany and France and down to Italy. And so that's one of the things on our bucket list. We, we're trying to find a week or two sometime here over the next few years to get out there and do that. So uh, your, your trip just sounds amazing, Tom. Oh, that'd be excellent. But, but look, let's uh, so we're going to lock back in here on the uh, as the fall gets kicked off here. 
And as I mentioned at the top, Vetify recently ran an advisor survey that had to do with uh, these concerns over the concentration in the S&P 500. And what I want to do, let me give you a few uh, quick numbers regarding that concentration, and then you can tell us about the the survey. And uh, as I noted right now, the top 10 names in the S&P 500 account for 29% of the index. Uh, The top five names... So that's uh, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, and Alphabet. Those five alone make up over 22% of the index. And then I'll give you one other data point here, which is that over 27% of the index is in the tech sector. So with with that as a backdrop, tell us what you found in the survey. And then I do want to get more into this, uh, this concentration. Yeah, looking forward to batting this around with you, Nate. So we asked uh, a community of our, a subsection of our advisor community, how concerned are you about the concentration of the top five names in the S&P 500? We gave uh, four different answers. Very concerned, concerned, just a little, not concerned. And so um, about 70% of the respondents landed in the very concerned at 16.9% or concerned at about 52%. Just a little, uh, you know, about 22% and not concerned, a, a, a little shy of 8%. So, so the, the, the lion's share of respondents are certainly showing some concern as, as they're certainly looking at the core of their portfolio construction, often getting exposure, um, you know, likely via one of the three large S&P 500 tracking um, ETFs. And, and so I think that as, you, as you're rightly pointing out, as we kind of pull the lens up a little bit and think about how this compares to historical concentrations, we're, we're, we're not right at the top tick as of, you know, the 31st of August, but we're very, very close. And so, you know, even if we look back all the way to 1996, um, we are within the sort of top 5% of this weighting in terms of uh, the historical uh, composition of, of this really important index. And so it's, it's definitely of concern to the advisor community and probably the investor community more broadly. Yeah, I thought that was a big number. I mean, nearly 70% concerned or very concerned about the concentration. And as I was thinking about this, you, you know, I, I I think there's a subset of advisors who they look back to the tech bubble and they look back to the financial crisis uh, in, in 2008. Because if, if you go back, so in 2000, I believe tech was north of 30% of the S&P 500. And the top 10 stocks comprise something like 25% of the index. And of course, we all know what would happen next with the dot-com bust. And then in 2006, financials grew to over 20% of the index, something like 22 or 23%. And and then, of course, the uh, financial crisis hit, and and that space was bludgeoned. So you can understand why advisors are concerned here. I think it's the old, you know, I've, I've seen this movie before. But on the other hand... I, I do think it's important to point out that if investors simply held the S&P 500, they, of course, also got the benefit of those sectors and top stocks running up to, to get to these lofty concentration levels. So I guess my point, Tom, is that I, I think the level of concern probably somewhat depends on how you view the world and your ability to time the market. But it, it's interesting. I mean, 70 percent right now, it's a big number. No, absolutely. And Nate, I think you're you're highlighting some, you know, sort of an age old paradox, the paradox of diversification. And, and so diversification does, uh, uh, you know, by definition, you're going to have outperformance in certain areas and underperformance in other areas as you try to build 
a portfolio that's not, you know, hugely correlated to one type of sector or asset class. And that's exactly what the S&P 500 does. And we've certainly seen a run up in, in the tech component in, in a big way, especially in the last five years. You know, just to throw some more statistics out on the table, the the composition really sort of bottomed out in terms of that uh, top or, or, you know, top weightedness, um, you know, in the 2013 to 2017 range, it was, it was down in and around only 16 to 18% was concentrated in the top 10. And, it, and as tech has made its massive movement up in the last, you know, five or six years specifically, that's really what's resulted in the overweight. And, and something a little bit under the hood there that, that comes to bear is, it also creates a bit of a dichotomy in terms of the valuation. Uh, so if you look at the top 10 components of the S&P right now, you know, you've got a, a, a you know, a simple price to earnings ratio of, of, you know, bumping up against 25%, 24.7%. That's based on some recent JP Morgan work um, and research that they've done where the remaining stocks, obviously to get to our average are quite a bit below that and, and more in the, you know, 14.6, right around 15 uh, times price to earnings ratio, so it, it it is very interesting. The other the other thing that you know I want to bat around a little bit with you, Nate, and I saw this um, over the weekend on Twitter, and and Eric Belchunas made this point on um, uh, he, he tweeted it, and it was a point that Sam Rowe made actually, and and I'm sure you saw this as as you were in on the thread, but it, it's also interesting as we look under the hood of the specific companies that are comprising the top five and. You know, just the size and scale of the businesses that they're operating and, you know, no better example than than the largest S&P holding Apple. And, and so the business is so complex and it's almost a uh, um, a symphony of businesses in and of itself. And, and, and you look at like the services component of Apple you know, almost 24% of revenue and their, their trailing 12 month revenue is, is bumping up against $400 million. It's crazy. And so you think of the iTunes revenue, the app store revenue, the, you know, the iBooks, Apple care, Apple pay, all of these things in and of themselves is a huge business. And, and, and there's so many other examples. We could take any of the top five and come up with a few of their businesses where we break them down and they are formidable in and of themselves. You know, uh, a shining you know example of that, the AWS business within Amazon, you know, that gets a lot of attention from Wall Street and analysts, you know, based on the, the size and scale and speed at which it's growing. But it's just really interesting to think about how in, in 2022, it's, it's a different market than it was in, you know, 20 years ago, you talk about the tech bubble or even the financial crisis going back, you know, 14 years. These are just different companies. And, and it's really interesting as we think about where investors are concerned, how they how they bring into their thought processes um, that these are actually, you know, uh, although they are one ticker, they are one company. They have many different types of businesses within that broader uh, ticker or company themselves. A any thoughts on that? Yeah, I saw that. So that was in response to a tweet I sent out regarding the, the concentration, our topic here today. Right. And yeah, I thought it was a good point by Eric Valchunas. I mean, just to crystallize what you're saying, I thought you described it really well. He was saying that these huge companies are like multiple companies in one. So they're like diversified plays in and of themselves with all the different acquisitions they've had over the years. And I think you know, Amazon, which you hit on, is probably as good of an example as any when you think about the retail business and the server business and, you know, the, the other uh, channels they have. 
the the one hesitation I have there, and I, I think that's a valid point, and I agree with it. I mentioned before some advisors saying, hey, look, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. You know, the question is, is it different this time? Another sort of cliche we hear in the investment world. And is there anything different this time? Even if these companies are diversified, they do still comprise a very, uh, you know, healthy portion of the index. There, there is still that single company risk, even if the companies themselves may again, be a bit more broad in what they do. I don't know that I have the answer to that. Everybody knows my crystal ball is broken. What I would say to all of this is whether or not as an advisor, you believe you have the ability to to time anything here. So let's just let's just say you think tech is overvalued and tech is going to collapse, regardless of whether or not these individual companies are more diversified than they've been in the past. I'm saying put that aside and let's just say you think tech is too heavy right now. Do you have the ability to time that? Because People have been saying that the the S and P five hundred is over concentrated for how many years now? I, I mean, I feel like we've been hearing this for five, six, seven years. It, it, nothing's really happened here in terms of that that aspect of the index collapsing. So that that that'd be my concern with advisors who have really strong concentration concerns. I'm not saying that they're not valid. It's just do you have the ability to intelligently act on those concerns? Well, no, absolutely, Nate. And, and back to where we jumped off into the conversation, you know, the community of advisors that that Betify has a huge element of connectivity to is is absolutely, you know, ringing that bell again. Albeit, it might have been a bit of an ever-present risk that they see, but it's one that has not been um, dissuaded, or they have not been dissuaded in, in in looking at their portfolio. And so then the question becomes, you know, how how do they approach that? And I think that's where we're going to go in a little bit. But before we do, I think to your point about diversification and, and how um, the core of a lot of portfolios was actually buoyed, um, you know, by this run up in concentration because the performance has been so great in those constituents. It's, it's you know, there's other similar, um, you know, counterbalances and, and, and take the energy sector, for example, where. You know, you go back to 2008, you know, right before or going into the financial crisis, energy would comprise, you know, 15 to 16 percent of the S&P. That number is down to five. And, and if we look at the trailing 12 month returns of the sectors, you know, the return on the energy sector is you know north of 50 percent. So so just like investors got to participate in in the increased concentration and in some of the performance over the last five, six years, if we shrink that time frame into more of the 12 months, they've actually lagged um, from exposure on the energy sector based on, on how the, the constituent weightings have changed over the last you know, five or six years. So that to, to your point, you uh, benefit in certain areas from sector outperformance, and then you're going to get you know pulled back in some areas where you're going to wish that you would have got more exposure. Yeah, I just think that's part of the deal if you're going to you know buy and hold a uh, broad index. Uh, but but look, let's not d- dismiss the concerns that are out there. And you, you started heading down this path with with some of the, uh, the the what advisors are doing on the Vetify platform. So I, I guess I'll ask you the question. I mean, if advisors are concerned about this and they you know, may consider doing something differently in their portfolio. Maybe they're looking for alternatives to the S&P 500. Um, I'm curious to see what data you have around this. Like, are, are you seeing an uptick in interest around things like equal weighted ETFs or other alternatively weighted strategies? Are you seeing advisors behave differently on the platform? Yeah, the short answer is yes, Nate. And so a couple of the areas that that I grab some data in regards to this, that, you know, the question, sort of the so what question, if, if you have this concern, how are you addressing it? And and so two areas that you you alluded to, 
um, equal weighting strategies, you know, so, so strategies like RSP or RSPE, or we didn't talk much about the NASDAQ, but, you know, we talked, we kind of focused at the front end there about the S&P 500, but it's a similar, um, if not even more interesting phenomenon, as you look at the, 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 the constituents and the top heaviness of the NASDAQ 100. So I also looked at some of the strategies that equal weight the NASDAQ 100. Um, and, and the short answer is we've seen a significant uptick in, in the equal weighting strategies. And then the other area that, um, and, and we can get into some of that data very specifically, but the other area that I looked at high level, and maybe you have some thoughts before we dive into the specifics of the data, are the low volatility strategies. So those are two different ways to approach. If you're worried about the core of your portfolio, you're worried about the concentration risk, you know, you've historically owned SPY, IVV, VOO to, to get that exposure. How do you approach it? And, and so um, happy to dive into that now if, if that's where you want. Yeah, to actually, I'd love to get into some of the uh, equal weighted ETF data. And, and by the way, I did pull a stat down or a couple stats down regarding the NASDAQ top uh, top heaviness. So if you look at the Qs, the NASDAQ 100 ETF, the top five holdings in that ETF currently make up about 43%. The top mm-hmm. 10 holdings make up about 54%. And then, of course, tech is going to be big here, as you would expect, over 50% uh, overall. But, uh, Tom, I'd love to hear what you found just on the equal weighted ETF side, and then we can get into the low vol. Yeah, and so it was it was a um, – the pattern was persistent, but I'll, I'll call out a, a specific piece of data as it relates, relates to QQQE, which is the Direction NASDAQ 100 Equal Weight Index Strategy. Um so one of the ways that we can look at, and I'll take a quick aside here, Nate, to talk about one of the ways that we are now analyzing some of the engagement data. And just as a quick refresher, what we're doing on the Vetify platform is measuring engagement at the ticker level by different types of investors. So advisors, you know, broadly, and you can even break that down into different types of advisors, individual investors, and then institutional investors. So right now we're looking at across the board, the blended average of how this is uh, this engagement data is changing. And one of the ways that we can look at that is, is I looked at the direction suite as a whole. And then if you looked at the constituents within all of the different products that direction has, how much of the attention is QQQE specifically garnering relative to the, the whole? And, and so what's happened and, you know, going back to December, it was kind of bumping along the bottom. It, it wasn't getting a lot of attention. But in July and August, the amount of relative intention 3X'd. So it went up 300%. Um, and so that's that's really, really interesting in terms of, of that. That was the biggest mover. But we saw similar patterns, um, you know, especially on, on the NASDAQ weighted elements. So there's also the First Trust product, QQEW, which is the First Trust NASDAQ 100 Equal Weight Index product. Um, and, and similar across uh, some of the S&P equal weight strategies. So RSP and RSPE specifically, RSP being the largest, which is the Invesco uh, S&P 500 equal weight strategy. And so we've, we're definitely seeing that as an area that uh, investors and advisors are turning, Nate, as they think about how to address this problem. And, you know, it's really hard to know, are they taking an allocation to something like an SPY and, and reducing it by a little bit, or are they taking, um, you know, a, as a complete um, swap, uh, you know, 
taking that position and, and get, you know using one of these equal weight strategies, probably a combination of them, but we're certainly seeing that engagement go up and to the right as it relates to these strategies. Interesting. Now, and you know, I over the weekend I was looking just at some of the different products in the space, and you, you hit on some of the big ones there. I mean, obviously, the the the, the biggest players, the Invesco S and P five hundred equal weight ETF ticker RSP. You mentioned there is that ESG version RSPE. But I was looking even down the, uh, the, the the leaderboard a little bit on some of these ETFs. I mean, Goldman Sachs has a product, an equal weight U.S. large cap equity ETF, ticker GSEW. Uh, Alps has an interesting product where it's an equal sector weight ETF, so ticker EQL. Uh, there's an Invesco Russell 1000 equal weight ETF, ticker EQAL, uh, another good ticker there. Uh, and then one that I thought was uh, interesting that I, I I have to mention, just because I've covered this ETF over the years, the Aero Reverse Cap 500 ETF. Uh, the ticker is YPS, so obviously the uh, the inverse of SPY, but that is uh, inverse weighting, uh, uh, inverse weighted market cap of the S&P 500. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if investors start taking a harder look at some of these in you know, from my end, obviously, I didn't have the Vetify data that you have, Tom, but I just went and looked at flows and I, I pulled a, a good stat for you. So RSP, the, the Invesco S&P 500 equal weight ETF is now actually Invesco's top ETF year to date in terms of inflows. Even though you look at a product like QQQ, that has $170 billion in assets. RSP only has $31 billion, but RSP has taken in over $3 billion of inflows. So there's clearly been a shift in investor preference here. And I also think it's noteworthy that, uh, you know, RSP has 31 billion. I think that might surprise some people for a product that simply equal weights the S&P 500 and, and for a 20 basis point fee, too. But, uh, you know, I think they were the first mover in this category. I think pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it's funny, Nate. So in, in a similar vein, I went down a, a path of the research path and rolling around in, in some data. And I think you're highlighting something that is, is you know, kind of um, hiding in plain sight in the ETF market. You talk about the first mover advantage. And, and I was looking at, I mentioned, you know, as we're doing the S&P analysis and, and thinking about the the nearly or, or slightly over trillion dollars that reside in three products, the State Street product, SPY, the iShares product, IVB, and the Vanguard product, VOO, which which get, you know, non-equal weight, uh, equal weighted strategy, but it's just pure S&P 500 exposure. And, and to the point of, the first mover, it's it's actually amazing as I looked at those and dusted off the numbers in terms of uh, not so much the assets, you know, SPY, a little over $400 billion, IVV, a little over $300 billion, VOO, you know, 280 or so. But as you talk about how assets beget assets um, with first movers, there is a, there is a net, natural network effect where brand um, liquidity profile, investor preference, it, it tends to go to some of those first movers. And, and if you deconstruct the revenue of SPY, for example, it, it's, you know, almost $400 million annually versus IVB, which is more like 125. So although the assets are a little bit, um, not, not quite that, uh, stark of a contrast, that SPY going back to 1993, it's, it's going to have its 30th birthday next year, which is pretty cool, um, is just an absolute behemoth and kind of 800 pound gorilla in that space. And in, in a similar vein, and although on a slightly smaller scale, we're seeing that in RSP. And we see that across other strategies where 
uh, the first mover certainly is important in the market. Yeah, no question. I mean, that's what jumped off the page to me. Again, I'm looking at the assets in RSP, that $31 billion, and again, a 20 basis point fee. The CTF is just simply you know, doing a 0.2% weight to every holding. That's it. So uh, you're right. I mean, clearly there are benefits to the uh, first mover. Um, okay, let's let's jump now to the low vol ETFs, because I do think if advisors are looking to maintain exposure to broad U.S. stocks, but maybe they do have some concerns, even if it's not specifically about concentration, it, it might just be about the overall market environment. One area they can look is to something like uh, SPLV, the Invesco S&P 500 low vol ETF, <clears throat> excuse me, which has worked pretty well this year, only down 7 percent. Or they might look to USMV, the iShares Minimum Volatility ETF. That's down 11%. And just as a comparison, S&P 500 is down about 17%. But it's interesting because as I thought about the low and minvol products, if you remember back to the COVID crash in March of 2020, these products had a tough time. I mean, they were down every bit as much as the S&P 500, but they are working a lot better this year. So I'm curious, are you seeing that translate into interest on the Vetify uh, platform? Yeah. So, so short answer is we are, Nate. And my, my colleague and fellow Vetify voice, Todd Rosenbluth, uh, wrote a recent piece on this and kind of went a little bit deeper um, in the comparison between SPLV, USMV, and, and SPY, which I think was really interesting. And that, that pushed me to look at this data. And so I'll use SPLV where from the, the June to August comparison in terms of that relative number that I talked about, it, it's up about 100%. So, so some significant interest, especially as we kind of went into the teeth of that volatility and, and you know, we put in that June bottom, which we'll see if that holds, but there's been significant interest in, in SPLV, a similar but not quite as significant increase in USMV which also kind of led me down the path and, and Todd did a really good job of, of deconstructing, you know, these products. It, what was really interesting and jumped off the page to me was how, how they take a different approach um, to reduce volatility as it relates to sort of this core exposure. So, you know, USMV, you know, 176 holdings SPLV, which is really just the hundred lowest volatility S and P 500 stock. So it's only got a hundred holdings, but as you look into their sector exposures, some really stark differences there. And, and you know, we, we started the show by talking about the overweighting in sort of that, uh, you know, broader tech space. And, and that's one of the things that SPLV only has a 3% exposure to information technology, whereas USMV has a 23% exposure. So one of those examples where, you know, the names actually sound quite similar, but as you pop open the hood, uh, the way in which they achieve, achieve the objective is quite different. Um, and, and so both both products have, you know, great merits of, of how they're built and constructed and certainly have, um, you know, ways in which they should be used within different portfolios. But just that that level of understanding and the education as we get into these strategies, which are a little bit more complex, um, certainly requires advisors, and investors to do their homework and research and, and, and really understand how the objective is being achieved and, and why in certain market environments it might be different than what they're what they're looking to get. No, that's a great uh, example. I think that SPLV and USMV, those are two ETFs that a lot of advisors think do the exact same thing. I think you highlighted well, they don't. Those are two that you definitely want to look under the hood on and understand how they work. One's just taking the 100 least volatile stocks in the S&P 500. That's SPLV. The other one is there's some sector constraints there. It's a minimum volatility approach to look for the portfolio that's going to have the the, minim, the you know the lowest volatility overall. 
as a portfolio, mm-hmm. not just taking the, the lowest volatility stocks. But um, in terms of the Vetify platform interest, so you, you have seen an uptick there on the low vol? Yeah, yeah. So, so SPLV was the one that had, uh, you know, more than 100% increase as we, as we compared August to June. Um, and, and so that's where we're starting to see that. USMV was more like a 50% increase, you know, just over that short period of time. But uh, that's uh, emblematic of, of one of the ways in which the advisor community is thinking about and doing research on solving the, the problem that we sort of highlighted. They highlighted to us, in fact, um, as it relates to the concern about the concentration. So uh, in addition to uh, you know, some of the equal weight strategies where we're seeing an increased engagement, we're also seeing similar increased engagement, albeit not quite to the, the degree on, on the equal weight side, but with the low volatility products. Yeah, and of course, performance always helps here, right? I, I mentioned the yeah. performance of SPLV and USMV. We didn't mention the performance of RSP, which I should have noted is is down 13% year to date, again, versus 17 for the S&P 500. But uh, I, I was looking last week, so S&P Dow Jones indices, they put out a great monthly report on their S&P 500 factor indices. And this year, out of 17 indices, the S&P 500 low vol high dividend index is the top performing, and then the S&P 500 low vol index is the fourth best. So that shows you, you know, the performance there. And there is an ETF, by the way, which covers the S&P 500 low vol high dividend index. That's a SPHD. And if you pull the performance on that, that's only down about 1%. So again, I think it fits with a theme we see often where, uh, you know, advisors are going to pay attention to performance in these different categories. I think that'll translate into uh, to the interest on the Vetify platform. Um, Tom, just a couple of minutes left. I, I want to quickly go to the other end of the spectrum. So, you know, we were talking low volatility ETFs. Let's talk long volatility ETFs. I'll be joined here shortly by Convexity Shares' uh, Tom Jart. And you think about products like uh, VIXY VIXI, the ProShares VIX Short-Term Futures ETF, or VXX, the uh, IPATH S&P 500 VIX Short-Term Futures ETN. Are you seeing advisors starting to research these now? Because I know some advisors will uh, use these tactically as a hedge. And of course, we have seen an uptick in volatility this year. Any quick thoughts on that space? Yeah, quick thoughts there, Nate, and, and certainly defer to Tom, the expert in in the you know underlying uh, mechanics of these products. They, they, I just you know want to really highlight the the different layers of complexity here. Like as we transition from summer to fall, th- these are like the double black diamond type products uh, from using a skiing reference, a downhill skiing reference. There's a lot going on underneath the hood, especially as you get into adding uh, some of the leverage components. And so, you know, certainly one of those types of of, uh, complex products that require a deep dive and and a deep understanding. And and ultimately there, what we've seen is that during periods of spikes, uh, spikes or, or downdrafts, you know, big changes, in overlying market volatility, we do see and just recently saw a similar trend where like Vixie, for example, you know, from from the June to August period had had a 120 percent increase in advisor engagement. And so that's really interesting. And, and there's some new, you know, obviously some new products that came out just in August and then some going back to to April of this year. Um, I'm sure that you guys will get into the history of the, those products. You know, some of the construction elements are are different and need to be well understood. But, you know, I think the, the one thing I just want to really emphasize is, is understanding um, what these products will do within certain market environments for 
anyone holding them, be them advisors, investors, or other, um, you know, is just incredibly important. And we look for, uh, you know, there, there's some great information on the Vetify platform and other sources. But yeah, we are we are seeing a spike in these. Some of the newer products, like specifically the Convexity Shares products, you know, having just launched on the 15th of August, little early to tell, you know, they're still really small, kind of sitting on, on the seed of the fund there. Um, you know, some of the things going back, you know, SVIX or, or, or UVIX, uh, you know, those are the ones that launched back in April, still relatively small funds, but starting to see an uptick in engagement. So an interesting space where, um, you know, last point I'll make, Nate, is that uh, are these products for everyone in every portfolio? Ab- absolutely not. Do they serve a purpose, though? Absolutely. And, and I love to see the continued innovation broadly in the space. And this is just another example of where the ETF industry is taking um, investor need and thinking about, you know, building new innovative ways of achieving different objectives. And, you know, I, I, I'm just thrilled to see that type of uh yeah, advancement in the industry overall and look forward to hearing what, what Tom has to say about it. Well, Tom, very well said all the way around. And, you know, I completely agree on the educational side of things, especially with products like this. So uh, very wise words. Uh, always enjoy visiting. Great stuff this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Have a great day. That was Tom Hendrickson, Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify.